This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Barbara Ramirez. We want to remind you that this program broadcasts from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people. Tonight, we speak with the Transgender Research Center of New Mexico and New Mexico Voices for Children. We are so pleased to be joined by Adrian Lawyer and Michael Trim from the Transgender Resource Center to tell us about the resources they offer to transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people in our state. Then we hear from Emily Wildow, Senior Research Policy Analyst and Kids Count Coordinator at the New Mexico Voices for Children. Emily shares about the 2023 Kids Count Databook, Education Policy in Our State, as we're getting close to the 2024 legislative session. And we have some vaccine messages to help you keep informed and safe, as well as some amazing music, starting with The Revolution Will Not Be Televised by Gil Scott Heron. Enjoy. The Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico is a nonprofit organization founded in 2008. The center works to provide advocacy, education, and direct services in support of transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming members of our community. Michael Trim is the executive director of the center and has been an active advocate for equity, justice, and freedom for black and brown transgender people. Adrian Lawyer is the co-founder and the director of education at the Transgender Resource Center. He facilitates transgender cultural fluency training sessions, and he's involved in advocacy efforts and so much more. Here's Generation Justice's Diana Ramirez speaking with Michael Trim and Adrian Lawyer. This is Gianna Ramirez with Generation Justice, and I am speaking with Michael Trim, Executive Director, and Adrian Lawyer, Director of Education and Co-Founder of the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. Adrian and Michael, welcome to Generation Justice. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Gianna. Please tell us more about yourself and your journey with the Transgender Resource Center. My journey uh, with advocacy and community work for um, transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people started with my own transition in, in late 2004, early 2005. I was living in rural Northeast Ohio at the time, attending Kent State University, when it dawned on me that I really was a trans person versus someone with some sort of um, psychosis that was unknown and super rare and uh, uh, isolating to me. And from that point in time, working on my college campus to then moving from Northeast Ohio to Arizona, and then finally to New Mexico to work with the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico as their uh, director of operations, um, I have done tons of work within community, everything from one-on-one -on -one advocacy and peer support to um, giving speeches and um, lectures and uh, was even on television once upon a time uh, talking about my transition. And that all led me to working with TGRCNM. Again, as I mentioned, I started as the director of operation back in November of 2020. 
became co-executive director in February of 2022 and sole executive director in July of 2022. For me, my my transition, it's always interesting to hear Michael talk about that. We're probably about 15 years apart in chronological age, but we transitioned at almost the same time, right around 2004, 2005, that era and how the information was finally starting to spread out a little bit so we could grab onto it. And my the beginning of my transition was was not too far in advance of the beginning of the center because those things are just really deeply intertwined. For me, the, the again, the experience of transitioning was super dark and isolated, you know, very similar story. It was just really, really hard to find the resources that I was looking for here in Albuquerque. Once I did find them, it was just really tough. There was no context. There was very little social support. I didn't know anybody who was trans and everything felt so incredibly difficult. And I'm a person who has a lot of um, social positional privilege. I have a bachelor's degree. I'm a white person. I'm a born U.S. citizen and monolingual English speaker, you know. And so for me, I was like, I'm, I'm having a really hard time finding the things that I need how much more so than for some other folks, you know, how much more must people be struggling with not being able to find these things if they don't even know how to, I mean, I, you know, I was not uncomfortable filling out name change paperwork or going to the courthouse and filing the name change paperwork. Now I've known folks, really powerful advocates who've taken years and years to file their name change paperwork because they were just intimidated and it's scary. And those systems are so exclusionary to so many people. So there was just a feeling that there was something that needed to be done. We just started with nothing in 2007, started trying to show up like in HIV prevention spaces, started a website, started doing the trainings and the support groups all the way back then, really opened our first drop-in center space at the beginning of 2012, was super happy to transition from uh, an ED role into the director of education, which has really been my passion all along. For me, primarily a training called Transgender Cultural Fluency, but also Transgender 201, pronoun workshops, gender neutral language workshops. Those things are my passion. And so that that's my role at the center now. And now also thinking about how do we turn educational efforts towards trans and non-binary people? What types of things as educa you know, as an education program might we be able to deliver to our communities, not just for, you know, on behalf of and for our Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for giving us more background and information on each of your stories and the work that you guys are doing. Please share more about the Transgender Resource Center or really anything else you would like to add about it. The Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico is a statewide agency with our physical now locations, plural, um, in Albuquerque. And we serve the transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming communities and their loved ones throughout the state and truthfully throughout the Southwest region through education, advocacy, and direct services. So the advocacy and education pieces kind of go hand in hand. That's everything from very micro level peer support, working with small groups to allow those individuals to go through whatever it is that they're needing assistance with, all the way up to large scale community wide um, advocacy, activism and community work. So that is everything, including uh, working with businesses for example, to audit, if you will, their physical locations to ensure that those spaces are welcoming and affirming. Same thing with policies 
intake forms, employee handbooks, you name it, we've probably looked at those things for businesses and organizations. Um, it also includes working with community partners like our good friends at Equality New Mexico uh, to help lobby the state government to keep New Mexico a safer state for LGBT plus folks. Uh, some of the victories for that include the Vital Records Modernization Act in 2019, and this year the repeal of the publication requirement for name changes statewide. Our Community Drop-In Center in Albuquerque is a resource where folks can come and receive food, clothing, use that space as their mailing address, store their items if necessary, um, and have access to affirming bathrooms and showers and laundry. Uh, programming from there also includes our harm reduction program, which is actually the only program we have that's open to folks of all genders. So including cis people for that harm reduction program, which includes syringe exchange services, overdose prevention education, rapid HIV and syphilis testing, and linkage to care for um, folks interested in medically assisted treatment and community conversations regarding um, sexual health and um, STIs and HIV. Additionally, in our drop-in center, we also have our mental health professional. In 2023, we hired for the first time a therapist to provide mental health services for transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. We have our non-medical case management, which is actually separated into two different programs, our adult services program serving folks who are adults, and our youth and families program serving aptly named uh, youth and or family units. Additionally, that non-medical case management is where things like emergency financial assistance live, where we can provide direct assistance to folks in need, which is really, really great because a lot of transgender folks in particular have less access to more meaningful, gainful employment, have more negative interactions with things like discrimination and um, the legal criminal justice system, et cetera. So it's really great to have a place where you can go in the event that you end up in a bind and we can help financially as well. Also within the direct services lens is our inside advocacy program. This is a program that works with transgender folks who are living in correctional facilities. Um, we don't want any transgender person to be left behind or to go without. So this is a program where we work with folks folks in county and state facilities in New Mexico. Uh, lastly, I'll say for the direct services, that includes our support groups. So currently we have seven active support groups with two more uh, coming back online in 2024. And these are all peer-led social support groups from everything from a very niche population for, for transgender folks who are utilizing the DD waiver, so folks living with developmental disabilities, all the way to the cutest, sweetest little children's play group uh, where, you know, little trans kiddos are just living their best lives out in the park, hanging out and having a great time. So all of those support groups are part of the direct services. And coming in 2024, we're super excited to talk about Casa Lola, which will be our transitional housing program, our transitional living program. 
So this will be for transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming adults age 18 and up um, as a welcoming, safer, more affirming uh, space where individuals who are recovering from experiencing homelessness can stabilize themselves and to discover and move um, actively towards the next phases and next steps of their life, the next chapters, whatever that looks like. So we're very excited to have purchased a residential property in May of this year and are currently right in the midst of interviews for staffing that program with um, very strong uh, hopes to be open in early quarter one of 2024. Uh, we pride ourselves in being a low to no barrier organization because we know that there's so many barriers and hindrances already in the way for our communities. So we do a ton of outreach. We get invited to do tabling at lots of different kinds of community fairs and school events and all different types of things. I actually got to drive down to Las Cruces because the LGBT programs down there was doing a drag show right around Halloween. So we got to table at the drag show. That's a lot, that's a fun uh, few hours of work for sure. Um, so we go out, our staff and volunteers go out and represent the center and try to make people aware of all the amazing things Michael just told about um, by being out in the community in that way. And then for 15 years, we've been delivering really high quality training about trans and non-binary folks that's adapted and evolved over the years as we've learned more and things keep changing in terms of our terminology and our understanding about all of this. Um, but essentially our training is called transgender cultural fluency. We do it for every imaginable group in the time that we've been doing it for very formal professional groups, law enforcement officers, correctional staff, doctors, nurses, teachers. We've trained at the judicial conclave twice here in New Mexico. But we also train friends and family groups in people's homes. So for us, it's not about it having to be formal or professional. It just has to be a group of five or more people who are interested in this content and interested in learning. We also have a follow-up training we call Transgender 201, just a next-level training with a few additional topics that we don't typically touch on in a transcultural fluency training. Now we have a 60 to 90-minute workshop that just focuses on pronouns and gender neutral language. A lot of times after people take the transcultural fluency, they feel more motivated to wanna shift their language to be more gender neutral, but it's so difficult when the dominant US culture has been a binary culture since its very beginnings, our language of course is very steeped in that binary um, framework. We don't realize we're doing it until we really figure out how to focus in and think about it, practice together, You know, be given an opportunity to really pull it up and look at it think about alternatives in a group, brainstorm those things, really helpful. What we have found recently, we've been involved in a, a research project with Equality New Mexico and a lot of other really amazing partners around the state. And we found out that after organizations like ours pulled as the most trusted messengers, cisgender folks around the state said that TGRC or Equality New Mexico, those types of expert organizations were probably the number one groups they would listen to around trans topics. But right below that, was simply a trans person I know. So that got us really motivated to wanna to train a trans person you know about how to better have these conversations because we know that a lot of trans folks feel intimidated about trying to talk about this and don't know how to talk about it, don't know what the best talking points are, don't have necessarily techniques 
or strategies for what can become uncomfortable conversations. So we're crafting, a, a, again, a two-hour training that we hope to take on the road around New Mexico to build community with trans and non-binary folks in different regions of the state to bring them in in connection and community with TGRC, but also just to help people out there in New Mexico be able to talk to their friends and family and coworkers in a way that hopefully helps to move those people a little bit closer since those are folks that they're looking to for this information. So we're really excited about that educational edition here in uh, 2024. Thank you both so much. Um, I feel like I've just learned a ton about all of the things that the Transgender Research Center and you both are providing for our community. So thank you for that. So much information and so much, so many resources that are absolutely amazing. Why is it important that centers like yours are available to our community? It is important that organizations like TGRC and them exist because human beings are not there yet. And when I say they're not there yet, I mean that we are not, as an overarching community, we are not at a place where we treat people with respect from the beginning. Transgender folks in particular are still murdered at a disproportionate rate, unemployed, underemployed, unhoused, precariously housed, discriminated against at disproportionate rates than our cisgender counterparts. Until freedom, until liberation, organizations like TGRC and M have to exist as safe havens where folks can create community, access resources, and where folks can be freer in a world that doesn't feel kind on many days, that doesn't feel supportive in far too many occurrences. Yeah, thank you so much. That was super powerful. So how can the community be involved in helping transgender people within our state? I really believe that people need our training or a training like ours, um, a high quality training about trans and non-binary people. What we've learned from other civil rights movements in the last you know, century is that what seems to shift attitudes is not policy and law. When we help to change the name change law or the birth certificate law, that helps trans and non-binary people. But it doesn't typically help cis people to feel differently about this or to perceive it differently. And what does help, according to the evidence, is education and what's called personalization. So when we know that we know a human being who possesses a specific minority characteristic or minority trait, then our perception of that group that carries the trait shifts and changes because we have an anchor into how we feel about that one person. It, it personalizes it, right? So it's never going to be those people once you have someone in your life that you know who is a person who carries that trait. So we believe that the training is a huge tool um, and we've been deploying this training for 15 years all over the state, all over the country with really amazing results. You know, in a moment, where these types of cultural trainings are almost coming under fire as potentially being sort of futile. I have 15 years of folks saying that they've changed their processes, they've changed their forms, they've changed their policies. So I really believe that those things still have potential power if they're done in the right way, I guess. You know, if if it's something that, that affects people the right way, then those trainings are still incredibly powerful tools for moving the culture forward. So for me, I would say it's an easy thing to sign up for a two-hour training. Come to a training and start there. And then I'm a big believer in names and pronouns as well. We have a ton of evidence 
around both the affirming power of names and pronouns and also the suicide prevention power, the protective power of using people's names and pronouns. So it seems like a simple thing, you know, pronouns are not the be all end all of, of supporting trans people, but they are deeply important. This is one of the most fundamental ways we show care and respect to other humans is by using their name and calling them what they've asked to be called. So that seems like a simple thing, but it's just a reminder we like to always give. After an individual, uh receive some some education on our communities, the best thing that an individual can do to support transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people in New Mexico is to take action, whether that is um, volunteering their time, donating their their items, you know, their clothing, their their goods, their their funds, their financials, voting for politicians and for elected officials who are in favor of continuing to support and protect TGNC people in New Mexico. Um, all of those things are taking action. Not everyone has the same capacity in taking action, but gone are the days of passive allyship. It's 2023 and the numbers keep going up for trans folks who are murdered simply by being themselves in public. So we need active accomplices in justice and freedom and liberation for trans people. If all you can do is share a, a social media post that's positive and uplifting, share that post. If all you can do is write a check once a year, write that check to a trans-led, trans-centered organization. Um, if you can buy a t-shirt or a hat or a pronoun pen, if you can add your pronouns in your email signature or on your name badge, all of those things help. They, they help us to move the needle societally so that trans folks can be more free. Absolutely. Preach. Thank you so much, right? Preach. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. I mean, it takes all of us, right? It takes every single one of us supporting each other, learning as much as we can. And of course, like Michael said, taking action to really make change happen and to, you know, make sure that everybody feels seen and supported in the best ways that they can. So thank you both for that. Where can people go to learn more about the Transgender Resource Center? We really do have a website that's beyond Facebook and Instagram, which is a really fantastic resource for individuals wanting to learn more about the organization and for individuals wanting to connect with us to receive services. So on our website, which is tgrcnm.org, we have lots of different pieces of resources for individuals. The first is our provider directory, which is a community-centered space where individuals can find providers of their choice, everything from medical providers to hairstylists to maybe even a lawyer if you need it. But that's a, a resource where folks can really start um, to find affirming, welcoming folks to provide services for them. Our website has our request remote support link under the resources tab. And that's where folks can engage directly with our staff and volunteers to receive services. So whether you just have a general question about transition or you need to get in touch with case management, or if you want to request a training from, from Adrian and our education team, 
that is a really great place to do that. Our website also has our calendar for events along with the days of operation and hours of operation for our community drop-in center. I know that sometimes folks are a little nervous about maybe making that phone call. So a lot of the general information that you need is available. Folks can find us on Facebook and Instagram at TGRCNM. Okay, awesome. Thank you, Michael Trim and Adrian Lawyer for being here today and for sharing a bit about your personal stories, but also how that's been such a motivator and really a source of passion for you guys in doing this work. Thank you for the work that you're doing and how dedicated you both are to helping our community. I can see the passion and the love for the things you guys do. So thank you for that. I feel like there's so much more that I can learn. I think it's amazing. And so I hope our community really appreciates all the information that you guys shared today and really takes note that you know, we can all be a part of this and helping our community, making sure change happens. And yeah, so thank you so much. And we appreciate having you on GJ today. Thank you for the invitation and for having us. Thanks so much. For Generation Justice, I'm Gianna Ramirez. Michael and Adrian, thank you so much for the essential life-saving work that both of you do at the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. Both of your stories hold so much power and it is so inspiring to see how you two have become trusted messengers in the New Mexico LGBTQ community, especially in our trans community. And thank you so much, Gianna Ramirez, for the amazing interview. Now we bring you the song, The Power Is Here Now by Alexia Chellen, a song about love community, and action chosen by our guest, Michael Trim. New Mexico Voices for Children is a nonpartisan statewide advocacy organization that works to create systems, level, sustainable change to improve the lives of New Mexico's children. To share with us about their work, the upcoming New Mexico Kids Count Databook, and the 2024 legislative session bills related to education is Emily Wildow. This is Barbara Ramirez with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Emily Wildow, Research and Policy Analyst at New Mexico Voices for Children. She's also the Kids Count Coordinator. Emily, welcome back to Generation Justice. Would you tell us more about yourself and your role at the New Mexico Voices for Children? Yes, so I'm Emily Wildow, and I'm a senior research and policy analyst, and I'm also the Kids Count Coordinator at New Mexico Voices for Children. And aside from Kids Count, I also lead our work around um, food security policies and education policy, particularly K-12 and higher ed. Um, I do a little bit of support on early childhood education as well, but I'm definitely uh, much more aware of the K-12 and higher ed space. Thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. Um, would you please tell us more about the Kids Count data book that you mentioned? Yes, I would love to. So, so Kids Count is a national program. So there's two versions of the data book that come out. There's the Kids Count national data book that's put out by the Annie E. Casey Foundation every year. Um, and that is the, the data book that looks at 16 indicators um, that are tracked across all of the states in four kind of domain areas. So you've got um, 
economic well-being, education, health and family and community for those kind of categories for the for the data indicators. Um, the thing that is kind of a double-edged sword with with the national data book is it's a ranking tool. So it ranks the states all to each other. Um, New Mexico has been ranked 50th in child well-being for the last couple of years. Um, you know, it's important that we have the rankings because it gives people a way to look at what's going on across all of the states, but there are only 16 indicators that are looked at. So I think that's always important to highlight that there may be other measures where New Mexico is doing better, but they are not the tracked indicators um, in the kids count report. And the other thing I'll say is that the ranking compared to other states in the national kids count data book isn't as relevant as looking at New Mexico compared to itself 10 years ago. So when you start to look at the data from that perspective, looking at where New Mexico has been and where we are, we do see a lot more improvement in the data. So, so there's um, places where we've made gains in the data. If you compare it to the US as a whole, there's places where we maybe didn't lose as much ground during the pandemic, even though we're still you know, ranked pretty low. Um, there's places where we're doing really great. Like if you look at New Mexico's rate of teen pregnancy in the last decade, it's dropped by something like 60%. So there's things where if you look at us compared to ourselves, you can really see the progress. And I think that's what's more useful with the Kids Count data book. Um, you know, it's also obviously only a piece of the story. It doesn't tell everything, you know, it's just data. Um, changes in the data take longer to show up in the rankings too, um, but also they don't tell you the full story of the people that, that are being described. So you don't get to see the strength, resiliency of kids. You don't get to see kind of um, the bigger picture of, of what our communities are capable of is really not reflected in the data. So that's always important to highlight. Um, really what it shows us is where we are or are not providing opportunities to our kids. So that's where it's useful. And then we also do every year a New Mexico Kids Count data book. And so that's the one that New Mexico Voices creates um, as the Kids Count anchor in the state. We include a lot more data in that. In that. So that includes um, data from PED when you're looking at education data, um, a lot of data by race and ethnicity as much as it's available um, and things like that. So it's got a a broader picture of the data in the New Mexico data book, still not a full story because it still um, lacks a lot of the things that we know about our, our communities and our families and our kids. Um, but it is a little more detailed and that also includes um, New Mexico Voices policy recommendations. I think it's important to start there because there's a narrative that New Mexico is always last mm -hmm. and both of us know that New Mexico children and youth are capable and that's what we want to make sure that we remember even when we look at data and we see that we are the 50th in the nation. Also knowing that there has been some improvement if we look at New Mexico only throughout the years. So tell me a little bit more about the highlights of the 2023 New Mexico Kids Count Data Book when it comes to um, the data indicator of education. Um, when you're looking at the national indicators, particularly the indicators around uh, reading and math proficiency, where we've been 50th for a long time. We've we've been at the bottom. Um, I think best case scenario, we maybe were 49th at one point. You know, we've been at the bottom for a long time on those. And 
Um, you know, they are based on a standardized test that's nationally administered. So, you know, you can take it in a bigger context than what we usually see of just those two indicators. I will say this, everybody saw a big um, kind of washing away of any improvements during the pandemic. So that, that goes nationally. That's almost everybody saw um, huge losses in reading and math proficiency. And so this is where it comes in handy to look at New Mexico compared to itself, because even though we do still have fewer kids who are proficient in reading and math than a lot of other states, when you look at this particular indicator, um, if you look at over the decade, we've actually, even with the pandemic, we stayed pretty much flat. So, um, you know, we'd seen a little bit of increase before the pandemic, not enough to change our rankings. Um, and we just lost that little bit of gain during the pandemic, but we didn't really dip below. And a lot of other states did. A lot of other states went worse than they had been a decade before. And so you can see that if you look at the U.S. as a whole, because even though we do have more students who are not proficient in reading and math, and even though that's a huge you know, emergency situation, we need to make sure our kids can read and do math. We're not the only state struggling, and we didn't do as bad as a lot of other places when it comes to the impact of the pandemic. So I think that's also important to share because people like to talk about how bad the school closures were for kids. Um, but, you know, I think realistically what was bad for kids was the pandemic. They were going through these huge, huge traumas. Um, a lot of our kids were experiencing you know, loss of family members, um, sudden economic insecurity, sudden housing instability, sudden sudden issues and or exacerbation of issues that were already prominent in their lives. And so those are the kinds of things that I think really um, had the impact on kids more so than the school closures. There's not really any evidence that states where schools were closed saw worse test scores. Um, there's kind of no pattern there. So I think that's important to highlight too, because I um, I know the narrative's not as strong now as it was, but it was a really frustrating narrative to hear that like, see, see, New Mexico closed the schools and now we did so bad. It's like, well, everybody did bad kind of regardless because there was a lot more going on than school for kids. Um, they, they didn't have, they couldn't just focus on school in the same way. Um, so anyway, that's my little soapbox about about school closures and COVID. But even though there are more kids that are dealing with um, a lack of proficiency in math and reading in New Mexico, when you look over a 10 year period, New Mexico saw 1% fewer fourth graders who were not proficient in reading. So basically we saw a slight decline over the decade in kids who weren't proficient in reading. And the U.S. is exactly flat. They are exactly in the same place. So they didn't see any improvement over 10 years in the U.S. as a whole. And we saw just a tiny improvement. Um, so I think that's important to note. And when it comes to math, we had um, it got worse for everyone nationwide. So, um, you know, we had the situation where there was 9% more eighth graders who weren't proficient in math. Um, but the U.S. had 10% more who weren't proficient in math. So again, we are just slightly doing better than the nation as a whole when it comes to our progress. Even though we have a larger number of kids that are dealing with the situation, we are not seeing declines in the same way that a lot of other places are. So, so that's my uh, 
favorite thing to highlight about the National Data Book. It's, a, it's over a decade, 2009-2022 for that data. I, I'm sure you've probably heard that there's some um, exciting news in the state data coming up. Um, so that'll be in the next data book that we've seen some improvements in our literacy in the state. Um, there's a really concerted effort in the state right now to bring in the science of reading, as well as a lot of conversations about how do we do science of reading without excluding dual language learners. We want to make sure that science of reading is not solely focused on English speaking students. We want to make sure that the same principles are being applied in teaching dual language and English language learning students. So we just want to make sure that we're adapting any of those practices that are much better for teaching kids to read to make sure that they're meeting the actual needs of our students who have such a strength in their multilingual abilities. We should really be leveraging that in our state for sure. So hopefully that will be really good moving forward. But in the most recent New Mexico Kids Don't Count data book, which came out in January of this year um, at the legislative session, has data mostly from um, 2020, um, since it lags behind where it's available. Sometimes it's older because of data collection issues. Some of the things that we know um, New Mexico does really well as far as getting young children enrolled in school, so three and four-year-olds enrolled in school. Um, we're really close to the level um, that the U.S. is at, um, and that kind of continues on, and I think we'll only get stronger as we continue to support our early childhood department and providers um, and families to make sure they can afford it, afford early care. Um, you know, one of the big things that, that was going on, um, the 2021-2022 the school year was a really high rate of students who were chronically absent. Um, so we had in the 2021-2022 school year, 40% um, of students in New Mexico who were chronically absent, which means that students are missing 10% or more of their classes. Anything that we do to support our kids, we're gonna have to make sure that our kids are getting to the classroom. So there's a, there's a big question of where are those kids? What's stopping them from getting to school? How do we bring them back to the classroom? Um, and so we'll see in the new data book how much that's improved. I think it's gotten better, but um, I'm not sure how much better. It's still probably pretty bad. So those are kind of a couple of the the big things from the New Mexico data book um, that we released in January, there will be new data soon um, so we can see the improvements there. Thank you. Um, what are some of the victories that we saw in the 2023 legislative session in terms of education? So one of um, the things that I was most excited about was the universal school meals. Um, so every kid who's in our schools in New Mexico now gets a free breakfast and a free lunch. Um, that helps kids be set up for success. You know, if you're hungry and you're at school, you're not really going to be able to focus very well on what you're learning. So we have eliminated that barrier for kids at school. Uh, we have, you know, like 73% of our students who already qualified for free or reduced lunch. Um, so now it just doesn't matter. You don't have to worry about the um, the paperwork in the same way for the families. Like it's just going to be provided to you. So that's really exciting. Um, what else was exciting in the session? 
they there was some really good work around um, increasing the pay for educational assistance. So um, EAs and classrooms are are a really vital part of our students' ability to learn and be supported. Um, they were being severely underpaid. They're still very underpaid, but they have increased their wages. Um, they raised the floor for, for educational assistance, which will help both keeping those people in the schools working with our kids and potentially provide them with pathways into um, bigger roles in the education system. Maybe they become teachers, you know, um, which is another thing we really need. Um, so those were both really good. And I believe, yes, so there was a couple other things. So they um, increased instructional hours for students. So for the students that are coming to school, they're getting more instructional time. Again, we still have to address the issue of the kids that aren't coming to school. Um, and we have to make sure that there's quality instruction. So educators need time to be able to do their professional development, to plan. Um, you know, they talked a lot during the session about like, more isn't better, better is better. But we know that there's pretty good research to show that when kids have more time in the classroom, getting instruction, they do better. So that's exciting um, as well. And the other thing that happened was an increase in um, some of the school funding. So New Mexico's schools are funded through a state funding formula that's called the State Equalization Guarantee, um, SEG commonly known as. And um, there's a factor in there that is referred to as the at-risk factor that calculates students, um, particularly who are low-income and English language learners, um, they're two of the big categories there. And funding was increased for that factor. So basically districts that have higher numbers of English language learners or low-income students um, basically are getting more funding for those students. Ideally to support those students in particular, um, that's another conversation about how well that's being done. Um, but theoretically there's more funding for those students um, as a result of the session and so that was that was another good thing, more funding for students who are considered at risk, um, which is two of the groups that are named in the Yazzie Martinez lawsuit. So um, that's exciting. And then um, out of the session came kind of a working group that's focused on how do we need to change that funding formula to ensure that kids are getting um, getting what they need to have the education they deserve. That's what it was. The family income index uh, was extended. So that's a that's a program that provides funding to the school level for the students who are in the deepest poverty. Um, so basically provides additional funding to those schools using a variety of data sources to determine the students they have that are um, in really deep poverty. And then it provides the funds to specifically support um, certain interventions that are designed to improve outcomes for those students. That's the last one. <laughs> Thank you so much. In terms of the upcoming 2024 legislative session, what should New Mexicans pay attention to in terms of um, education? Are there any bills that NM Voices for Children is following or supporting or? Yeah, so um, we're going into a 30 day session that is solely based on the budget. Um, so it's quick. Uh, it's all about the money. Um, there's not as much room for, for some of the other kinds of things that we'd like to see happen. Um, there is going to be a bill to support the creation of a tribal education trust fund. Um, so that's going to be coming forward, which will basically just create a permanent pot of funding to support um, tribal education in the state, which would be really, really 
important. So we're going to be supporting that um, in the coming session. As far as other specific bills, I'm not sure yet what all might come up. Um, you know, we'll be supporting things like continued funding for universal school meals, um, continued funding for the Opportunity Scholarship if you want to get to higher ed, um, protecting funding for early childhood, particularly protecting um, the Early Childhood Trust Fund and making sure that that remains dedicated to early childhood services. Um, and generally just funding for education, making sure that, um, you know, there's not anything popping up that would take money away from schools. Um, so whether that's looking at our tax code, um, what the tax package looks like, which is a big thing Voices does um, that's connected to education because we like to make sure that we're not spending money as a state on tax breaks for people who don't need them when we could be using that money for things like education and other services. The most specific one I have is the Tribal Education Trust Fund. Um, and I'll say it again, because I think it's really important. A little further down the line, they are looking at reform, uh, reforming the state school funding formula. So that'll be coming up in the 2025 session, but I'll go ahead and get it on people's minds now <laughs> that in 2025, um, there's going to be a lot of discussion around how we actually distribute the funding to schools. Is that effective? Um, are districts accountable for the things that we need them to do to make sure that the students, particularly those named um, in the lawsuit, are getting the education that they deserve, that it's um, high quality and equal to the education other students might be getting. So um, that's that's further down the road, but I'm really excited about it, so I always talk about it. Um, the other thing I'll say is if there's any bills around um, creating school vouchers, um, we'll be in opposition to that. Uh, we don't want to see funding taken from the public schools and supporting private school enrollment because the majority of New Mexico's kids are always going to be in public schools. Um, the majority of school voucher programs end up publicly funding families to send their kids to school who already could afford it. So it's just, there's a lot of um, equity issues with voucher programs. So if that comes up, we'll oppose it. Um, not sure if it's going to, but we're going to be ready for it. Thank you so much for sharing more um, about what we should be paying attention to. Is there anything else that you would like to add? I don't think so. I think you let me do all of my, <laughs> all of my soapbox <laughs> stuff. So thank you. <laughs> Emily, thank you so much for speaking with us this evening. I appreciate all the work that you do at New Mexico Voices for Children to make sure that we have the numbers, that we have the data, but that we also know how to interpret those numbers and how we can better serve the youth and the students of New Mexico. For Generation Justice, I'm Barbara Ramirez. Before we end our program tonight, we would like to take a moment to remind you about some vaccine information to be aware of. During the winter, it is so important that you're practicing safety protocols to keep you and your loved ones safe from viral illnesses such as COVID-19, the flu, and RSV. It is really important that you wear a KN95 mask, especially if you have flu symptoms. Getting vaccinated 
is one of the most effective ways to protect yourself from illnesses. If you or a loved one is still in need of a COVID-19 vaccine, flu, or RSV, you can visit vaccinenm.org and make your appointment today. I got vaccinated because my grandma is an elder and she suffers from other illnesses. Since she is at at risk, if she were to get COVID-19, it's really important that she's vaccinated and that the family around her is also vaccinated. Once again, you can visit vaccinenm.org and schedule your vaccination appointment. To find out more about other available vaccines, visit nmdoh.org. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this hour of community action. We'd like to thank our guests, Michael Trim and Adrian Lawyer from the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico and Emily Wildau from New Mexico Voices for Children. Tonight's Hour of Radio was produced by Roberta Rael and myself, Barbara Ramirez, with production assistance from Sunandita Santanam. And thank you to our interviewer, Gianna Ramirez. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, the New Mexico Department of Health Infectious Disease Bureau, through the Better Together Coalition, the McCune Foundation, as well as Media Justice, the Santa Fe Community Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. I'm Barbara Ramirez. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word. So stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Buenas noches, Nuevo México.